everyone. Welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is Amy, and this is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. In this episode, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the rock and roll disaster at Altamont in 1969, and the 40th anniversary of the tragic deaths of 11 people who attended the Who concert in Cincinnati, almost exactly 10 years later in 1979, I'm going to discuss the business side of 70s rock. It was the business side of rock and roll that led to the tragedy in Cincinnati, and it was the beginnings of rock as business that was a contributing factor to the scene at Altamont. I will also examine the culture around rock concerts, which led a lot of people to blame the fans for what happened in Cincinnati rather than the industry that allowed it to happen in the first place. First, a thank you to the new and returning listeners. I appreciate those of you who have reached out to me with your kind words. Remember that if you like the show, leaving a five-star rating on whatever app you use to get your podcasts helps other people find the show, and that is very much appreciated. On December 3rd, 1979, The Who played a concert at Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. The band was in the midst of a world tour, and this was their first since the death of their drummer, Keith Moon, in September 1978. On that night, 11 fans were killed in a crush of people who had been waiting for hours to get into the Coliseum. When some people heard the band begin their sound check, the pushing and shoving began, and the worst-case scenario came true. To make matters worse, many people blamed the fans themselves for this tragedy. How did we get to this point? As is often the case, to get a better understanding of the multiple factors that led to these deaths, we need to go back into history. In the 50s, if you wanted to see rock and roll live, you went to a review where several bands or artists came out and played their hits. Or maybe you went to a smaller venue which could have quite literally been a high school auditorium in some smaller towns. This was when music was a lot more about the single and getting on the radio to sell your 45s rather than albums. People wanted to hear the hits, not a bunch of songs that they probably did not even know. Fast forward ahead to 1966, and no band is as popular as the Beatles, who have changed rock and roll and the music industry forever. When the Beatles played in the United States, they were playing in these really large venues like Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles and Candlestick Park in San Francisco, but the technology literally did not exist that would allow a band to be heard or for them to even hear each other in a stadium. The Beatles were way too popular at that point to play a small club. I mean, that would not have even been safe. But they also could not hear anything other than screaming girls in stadiums. So what was the point in touring at all? There wasn't one as far as they were concerned, so they stopped. By the time the Rolling Stones had figured out how to play to large crowds in large venues and make some large money for themselves, it was 1969 and the Beatles were all but broken up. A ticket to see the Rolling Stones in 1969 would cost you anywhere between $3 and $8 Seven dollars or eight dollars was an expensive concert ticket in 1969, so they got a lot of criticism for these ticket prices. They had also worked out a deal to get a 50% advance on ticket sales to help pay for the show, 
And they also got control of the sale of T-shirts and posters and programs and things today that we would call the merch. When I say they, I mean Ronnie Schneider, who was a tour manager who kind of handled the business side of things. The band also uh, controlled the lighting for the show. They hired the opening acts. They took charge of the things that would typically have been the responsibility of the tour promoter. Ethan Russell, who was hired as the official tour photographer and had unprecedented access to the band, said, Mick Jagger was one of the first to understand that they were making more than music. This was performance and entertainment. By the way, I have linked to some of Ethan Russell's photos in my show notes at ftr70.com. Definitely check them out. They are amazing. So the Stones put on a true show in the way that sets the standard for the arena tours that will come in the 70s and the 80s. This was not good news to everyone, and the band was getting, as I said, criticism for the ticket prices. Was this a business, or was this rock and roll? It was inconceivable to most people in 1969 and into the early 70s that you as a musician would be focused on money. Not that you didn't want to make it, but that was somebody else's job, and Any hint that you were taking money over making music for your fans meant that you were a sellout. Peter Wolf, the lead singer for the Jay Giles Band, which, by the way, did stadium tours with the Rolling Stones, said, an artist never got involved with his business. It was sacrilegious because you weren't a businessman. You were an artist. You were a musician. The idea of talking about demographics and sales points It was ludicrous. So in 1969, the Grateful Dead had been putting on free concerts in the San Francisco Bay Area uh, for quite a while and decided to hold a festival that would include West Coast bands like Jefferson Airplane, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Santana, the Flying Burrito Brothers, and special guests, the Rolling Stones. Never mind that the Grateful Dead did not know exactly where this festival festival would be. Um, as a gift to their fans, a gesture of goodwill, mind you, and perhaps trying to piggyback on all that love and peace from Woodstock just three months earlier, the Stones announced that they would be part of this free concert, which was scheduled for December 6, 1969. It was a complete clusterfuck. They didn't have a location until the day before the event. There was no food. There was no running water. There were no medical personnel, no parking. It ended up at a nearly bankrupt racetrack, Altamont Speedway, which was offered for free. The Stones were willing to do this in part because they wanted footage for their concert film, Gimme Shelter. On this film, you can see that the stage is not much higher than the audience. Maybe three feet high, four at the most, and there's only a string separating the stones from the fans. Notably, there are some very drunk members of the motorcycle gang, the Hells Angels, sitting on the edge of the stage. They were hired to keep fans from rushing up onto the stage, for which they were paid about $500 worth of beer. The idea of a drunk, notoriously violent motorcycle gang serving as security for a rock and roll festival does seem ludicrous, but apparently it was preferable to the police. This was a bad vibe, almost from the beginning. 
This was no Woodstock. When the Stones finally took the stage, there was already fights breaking out, and the Hells Angels were in the midst of all of them. One of them had already knocked Marty Ballon of Jefferson Airplane unconscious twice. On the Gimme Shelter film, you can hear Mick Jagger asking the crowd to relax and cool out, although it was really the Hells Angels with their sawed-off pool cues filled with lead that were causing a lot of the problems. Frankly, Mick sounded pretty scared, but the band breaks into this much slower version of Under My Thumb than we are used to hearing, which really kind of fit the mood of the dude tripping on acid right next to him. There's one thing, uh, what we need, Sam, we need an ambulance. We need a doctor by that scaffold there. If there's a doctor, can you get to there? Okay, here we're going to, we're going to, I don't know what we're doing. When we get to really like the end and we all want to go absolutely crazy and like jump on each other, then we'll stand up again, you know what I mean? Everyone keep that, sit down, I mean, just keep cool. Let's just relax. Let's just get into a groove. Come on, we can get it together. Come on. Sit down. eerie listening to that i mean it's such a cool version of the song uh and if i didn't know that somebody was dying as mick jagger was singing that i probably would listen to it more often but uh, the fact was that during this song uh, a young african-american man named meredith hunter who was in attendance at this uh, festival with his white girlfriend so that in of itself uh, may have caused some issues he brought a gun uh, to the show, and according to his girlfriend, felt threatened by at least one of the members of the Hells Angels, and that guy stabbed him. And then others joined in and quite literally beat the life out of Meredith Hunter, and so he lay there dying near the stage as the Stones are playing Under My Thumb. And Hunter was not the only person to die at Altamont. There were three others that died uh, they died due to accidents. There is no way in hell that any band would agree to perform under those circumstances uh, even 10 years later. Maybe it should have been a warning. To many, it signaled the end of the 60s as an era. I mean, it's not fair to compare the musical festival Altamont to your garden variety rock concert. However, the culture or the perception of the culture which consisted of baby boomers stoned out of their minds on weed or tripping on LSD, mixed with violence and a general lack of regard for the person nearby, came to be the general perception 
for all rock concerts. There were many who believed that they were all like that. Truth be told, some were like that. The biggest legacy that the Rolling Stones created with that tour is that rock was now officially a business. It was not just about art. It was also about money, and money was there to be made on tour. And if you could get more butts in the building, not seats, in the building, you could make money. It's been over 20 years now, but uh, Fred Goodman, a music journalist and a former editor of Rolling Stone magazine, wrote a book about this called The Mansion on the Hill. If you're interested in the transformation of rock from art to commerce, from a pre-21st century, pre-streaming music era, check it out. In the prologue of the book, Goodman wrote, the folk rock movement brought a new artistic, social, and political intention to the music that early rockers did not have. Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis were all extraordinary inventive performers, but they aspired to show business careers, not to lasting art. The rock as art philosophy, according to Goodman, came from the folk rock performers like Bob Dylan, and as Peter Wolf said, you just did not give any sort of indication that you were in the business of making rock and roll because you were interested in making millions of dollars. Coleman's book was published in 1998, and things have changed a lot in the music industry since 1998. But in 1998, the largest of the media and tech companies like uh, Time Warner and Sony, these companies grossed over $20 billion in 1998 alone, and that was largely fueled by the sales of records. And those records were almost, I wouldn't say exclusively, but they were primarily rock and roll. Of course, all of this impacted the live shows. One of... The best live bands of this era was Grand Funk Railroad. On July 9th, 1971, they became the first band to play their own show at Shea Stadium in New York. They sold out Shea Stadium in 72 hours, and the only way you could get tickets was to walk up to the ticket window. But even that required camping out overnight. Do you know how people used to get concert tickets if they didn't go to the venue to buy them? Gather around kids mail order. They sent money through the United States Postal Service and tickets were mailed to them. How could that be, you ask? How could I select my seats, you say? You didn't. More on that later. So Grand Funk Railroad puts out a press release that brags about how much money they were making at the Shea Stadium concert. $304,000 or exactly $5,010 per minute. That, my friends, is why bands started playing stadiums and arenas. Why make a few thousand per night when you could make a few hundred thousand per night? More impressive to me, though, is that Grand Funk Railroad put out five albums between 1969 and mid-1971. Each one a success, and this was not a band that got a lot of radio play. Critics were not really big fans of Grand Funk Railroad. However, a writer for a local uh, newspaper in Flint, Michigan, named Steve Whaley, he wrote this about the band. It doesn't really matter if their music isn't as skillful, perhaps, as others. It's just that it's real. I think it's a free experience. That's what revolution is really all about. We're after the type of freedom that you feel 
when you completely lose yourself at a rock concert. When Grand Funk Railroad played Shea Stadium in July 1971, this was their biggest hit to date. Whaley's right. I kind of lost myself in that one for a minute there. Uh, I'm Your Captain, Closer to Home, written by Mark Farmer, who also uh, sang lead on that song. It only got to number 22 on the Billboard Hot 100. But again, this was not a popular band on AM radio. They got more airplay on the new uh, FM stations. But it was a very popular song with uh, troops in Vietnam. You can understand why. Um, those are some meaningful lyrics if you're far from home and do not want to be far from home. Uh, also, let me correct myself. I think uh, in being lost in the song, I said Mark Farmer, and that's Mark Farner from uh, Grand Funk Railroad. It is notable that in Timothy Ferris's review of the show for Rolling Stone magazine, he said that uh, this of the sound, this is what he said, it was done through a sound system that despite its enormous power was pushed to such distortion that everything sounded as if it were being played full blast on the world's biggest car radio. That may be, but you can find video of that show, and it quite literally looked like the stadium was going to collapse from all the people jumping and clapping and having fun. Bands began to make music that was specifically designed to be played in large arenas. Uh, Progressive rock, hard rock, it didn't matter. The intention was the same. That brings us to festival seating. Festival seating, which we would simply call general admission seating today, was considered an essential part of the culture of rock concerts. In fact, some bands would insist on festival seating because the fans could get closer and, of course, more tickets could be sold. Fans would wait in line for up to three nights to see Elton John or Kiss or Fleetwood Mac. They took their sleeping bags inside after they'd waited outside all of that time to get tickets. And then sometimes they sat on the sleeping bags on the floor. I would not want 
that sleeping bag back after it was on an arena floor during a rock concert. Ticket prices were in the generally $5 range when the 70s began, and by the end of the decade, it cost you 10 bucks. With festival seating, fans who were usually teenagers could get right up against the stage and feel like they were part of the show. Most performers love that. I mean, fans love that, but performers really love that too. Time and time again, bands who were asked about the potential dangers of festival seating, even after the Who show that we'll talk more about here shortly, said that they preferred the festival seating and would not play a venue that did not offer it. And by the end of the decade, you expected a show, not just music. There is a reason that live albums became so popular in the 70s. If you couldn't afford to go to a rock concert or your mom wouldn't let you go or you did go but you wanted to relive it, the live album was your best option. In September 1970, the Rolling Stones released Get Your Yaya's Out, which was mostly live recordings from two shows at Madison Square Garden in 1969. It is still considered one of the best live albums ever made, which makes perfect sense because the Stones are kind of the founding fathers of the modern rock movement, or some of the founding fathers, not the founding fathers. The 70s produced some of the most classic live albums ever made. Kiss took the concept of glam rock and played it with this kind of edge of hard rock and mixed in wild makeup and fireworks and then cranked up the volume. And their fans loved it. They understood the concept of playing to the back of the arena. They understood theatrics and they parlayed it into success. Did rock purists like Kiss? Hell no. However, Kiss Alive, released in 1975, is considered a classic rock live album. And even though there is still some debate about how much correcting they may have done in the studio, it does not diminish its appeal. 16 cuts taken from four shows on the Dress to Kill tour. This is a bit of rock and roll all night from Kiss. You know, disco fans should have some appreciation for this song. Why? Well, okay, the song made it to number 12 on the Billboard pop charts, and that's pretty good. But the album saved Casablanca Records 
And that's good because if you're a fan of disco and specifically Donna Summer, uh, you're grateful because Donna Summer became one of that label's most popular performers. Anyway, back to live, uh, live arena rock in the 1970s. Peter Frampton's album, Frampton Comes Alive, was released in January 1976. It sold 8 million copies that year and has sold about 11 million in total, making it one of the best-selling live albums of all time. Frampton usually ended his show with this song, which was originally recorded in 1973. singing along. Come on, I know you were. You're very welcome that I had that on mute, uh, my audio on mute, so you could not hear me singing. Do You Feel Like We Do went to number 10 on the Billboard charts. That song is 14 minutes long, which was way too long for most radio formats uh, in 1976. So there's different versions out there that classic rock like to play, shorter versions. Uh, Classic rock radio stations, I should say. Frampton was a relentless touring performer, and that no doubt helped his album sales, but he never really lived up to Frampton Comes Alive again. Uh, His next album, I'm In You, didn't sell as well, even though I'm In You, the song, did sell well. Still, critics didn't like it that much. Then he made some probably bad choices, that seemed designed to market him as a sex symbol. Um, He posed shirtless for Rolling Stone magazine, and he played this ludicrous non-speaking role in that horrible film, the Sgt. Pepper movie. And just like that, Peter Frampton was no longer taken seriously as an artist. It seems like that after Frampton's album, we get to this point where bands are writing songs that everyone can sing along to, and at a minimum, everyone knows the chorus, 
Now, I don't have any data to back up Peter Frampton's responsible for this, but it just seems when you look at the record charts and record sales, it kind of seems like they they do go together. Um, we're talking about bands like Journey and Kansas and Styx and REO Speedwagon. Is there any doubt what Steve Perry and Neil Schoen had in mind with this song? Touch and squeezing. That was uh, Journey's first top forty hit. That's kind of surprising. First top forty hit in uh, nineteen seventy nine. It made it to number sixteen on the Billboard Hot one hundred. Bob Ross, who was the music critic, a music critic for the Tampa Bay Tribune, uh, and he attended the Journey Thin Lizzy show in nineteen seventy nine. This is what he wrote in his review of that concert: refusing to challenge their audience in any musical or intellectual fashion. These bands capitalized on their established successes, scoring ovations and encores by doing exactly what the fans expected. And I'm sure he wasn't wrong. That Journey Thin Lizzy tour was festival seating, by the way. seven fifty for an advance ticket, $8 day of show. And I'm not picking on them at all. That same summer, it was festival seating for the Doobie Brothers, Styx, Peter Frampton, Van Halen. When examining the reasons for festival seating and the type of artists who insisted on it, it was not a hard rock thing. It was not a heavy metal thing. It was a music industry thing. It was a money thing thing. This system was designed to squeeze as much money out of the pockets of fans, mostly young people, as possible. Safety was secondary. And in the meantime, the kids who went to these shows were called animals. Literally, a 1975 article in the Vancouver Sun, which was debating the safety of festival seating uh, four years before this tragedy in Cincinnati, said, and I quote, The argument for the rock fan as animal was confirmed for those seeking confirmation by the 1972 Rolling Stones concert. The broken glass and Molotov cocktail melee outside the Coliseum 
involving a strident yet hearty typical band of kids still represents the ultimate security threat to police. That same article goes on to quote a police officer from the city of Vancouver who said that he would prefer festival seating over reserve seating because if they don't have it, then somebody who has a bad reserved seat will go down to a better reserved seat and there will be a fight. That police officer said, we don't want to have to commit half of the Vancouver police force to a rock concert. The tone of this article was like many that I read. The implication being that the kids who went to rock and roll shows were out of control. You didn't want to do anything to further incite problems. And having reserved seating was considered further inciting problems. A concert promoter named Tom Hewitt was also quoted in this article. He made a point of mentioning that Elton John was a personal friend of his. He also made the point that Elton John would not play a show if there was not festival seating. In the 70s, Elton John was money in the bank, and you did not want to risk having him pass your town. He was one of the most popular performers of the 70s, and so his shows attracted long lines of fans who lined up very early to get a good seat. And by very early, I mean maybe a couple days in advance. I'm sure that many of you have seen photos of Elton in his uh, sequined Los Angeles Dodgers uniform. Maybe you were there. Uh, this was the, the two nights that he played at Dodger Stadium in 1975. 55,000 people cramming into Dodger Stadium, and they got exactly what they went for. They went to see Elton and hear Elton play his hits and see his theatrics. Make no mistake, by 1975, which is barely five years after Woodstock and Altamont, the ability to play a large venue like a stadium or a coliseum was more often than not the difference between success or not, and Elton could do that. The reviews of that show and that tour from city to city often commented on how, A, you could hardly move near the stage, but nobody seemed to care, and B, how captivating he was. He was rock and roll's highest paid performer for a reason. He delivered. I'll bet you can name that tune in one note.
and the Jets. You got it, didn't you? Uh, that's a live recording from Elton John's show at Madison Square Garden in New York. Uh, he could play that opening note. Everybody knew what was coming. That concert was in 1974. The album, Here and There, was released in 1976. And oh, by the way, John Lennon showed up at that show and played three songs uh, with Elton. Trouble played plagued Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati almost from the beginning. It opened in 1975, and in 1976, 15 people were arrested at an Elton John show. Eight people were injured by fireworks. That was a problem at a lot of arenas at a Fleetwood Mac show there in 1976. In December 1976, nine people were arrested for throwing rocks and bottles at an REO Speedwagon Aerosmith show. In April 1977, 76 people were arrested at a Led Zeppelin show and four police officers were injured in an incident that began when fans wanted in and could not get in. Tickets to see The Who on December 3rd in Cincinnati sold out in 90 minutes. There were 14,770 festival seats and 3,578 reserved seats in the loge section. The band was touring in support of the album Who Are You, which was released in December, uh, was released in 1978. This was the last album with Keith Moon on the drums. Already known as one of the best live bands, the title track to this album was one of the few from that album that they actually played live on the 1979 tour. Who Are You released in The night of the concert, it was 36 degrees in Cincinnati, and it was windy. Uh, thousands of fans had begun to gather on the concourse by 1.30 that afternoon, and that was business as usual. They would wait and wait and wait, and then they would run to the stage 
once, once the doors were opened. An employee of Riverfront Coliseum said they did not call it festival seating. They called it animal seating because when the fans finally got in, they went in like a herd of cattle. The show began with a 20-minute clip from the movie Quadrophenia, which was based on the album of the same name by The Who, and the band was then due to take the stage around 8.20. One of the police officers at the Coliseum noted that there were about 8,000 people crowding the glass doors by 6.30 p.m. Now, this was a problem. He told the Coliseum director and the uh, promoter from the electric factory who was promoting the concert to open the doors. They said no, not until the sound check was over. And they also said there were not enough ticket takers to open the doors. Now, fans could hear the sound check. They were cold, and they'd been standing outside for six hours, and they thought they were missing something. People began to yell that they wanted the doors open, and then the pushing and shoving started. In the back, people yelled, one, two, three, push, and then pushed the crowd forward, not realizing that people in the front were falling. The people in the front had nowhere to go. The pushing and shoving and crushing started around 6.15, and it went on for about 90 minutes. When the doors were finally opened, there were only two. If you fell, you might die, and some did. This is the way that Chet Flippo described it in his Rolling Stone article in 1980. A few of those thousands of young people, the youngest known was four years old, had blood on their shoes as they happily ran down the concrete steps into the pit, the seatless area in front of the stage where the true fanatics stand throughout the show. But no one noticed. Some of the people who paused, dazed, beside the green and white pizza stand just past the nine turnstiles at the main entrance had no shoes on at all and some had lost other bits of clothing. But other than that, inside the hall, it just seemed to be business as usual. The familiar ragtag rock and roll army staggering into the hall after five or six hours of waiting outside in the cold for the doors to open and keeping warm and happy with herbs and beer and wine and each other. Policemen were told that people were getting hurt but they didn't do anything, or they told fans to mind their own business and move along. People were literally being swept away by the crowd, feet off the ground, arms pinned by the mass of bodies. Some fell to the bottom of the pile and suffocated to death as they were trampled by the thousands of feet desperate to get into the Colosseum. Those who kept their feet went over or around the bodies that were piled up by the door. The first body was found by the police on the scene at 7.54 p.m. Nobody told the band because nobody wanted to cancel the show. They were worried about a stampede. And that is the way it was reported by many news outlets. A stampede. And now, a rock concert in the news. Thousands of young people had gathered hours early to get into Riverfront Coliseum in Cincinnati, Ohio. The attraction was the British rock band, The Who... Suddenly, one pair of doors to the Coliseum was broken open, and the waiting throng rushed inside, eager to get the best possible seats. In the stampede, 11 people were killed, eight others seriously injured. Rock music fans everywhere were shocked. Observers blamed the tragedy on several factors. 
Most of the seats, 80%, were general admission. That meant the first fans into the Coliseum would get the best places, and that encouraged the rush. Also, many of the kids had been waiting hours to get in. Some had been drinking or using drugs. The concert went on as planned, but the members of the Who were badly shaken. If it had happened inside the hall, I don't think I would ever play again. There is a kind of a football game, boxing match feeling to a rock concert, and it's what guys seem to get off on. You know, they like, uh, they like this high-energy sort of event. The Who asked authorities to help make future rock concerts safe. And later this week, their concert in Buffalo, New York, was. Unlike Cincinnati, all Buffalo seats were reserved. I'm Christopher Glenn with a rock tragedy in the news. This wasn't because of drugs or alcohol, and I don't even think it's fair to call it a stampede. It was a disaster that had been 10 years in the making. And even though Cincinnati banned festival seating for many years after this, there were still a lot of people who refused to believe that festival seating was to blame. Jerry Mickelson with Jam Productions said that festival seating is a way of life for rock concerts and it is not going to change. Even the fans still believed it. After the Who show, cities began to ban festival seating, which pissed off the fans because bands canceled. In a letter to the editor of the Tucson Citizen in late December 1979, 132 high school students signed off on a letter to the editor about Tucson's decision to ban festival sitting, and their main complaint was that Styx had canceled a concert, so other bands were sure to follow. Brian Doucette, age 23, who went to see The Who in Buffalo the night after the Cincinnati show, he was asked if he was upset by what had happened. He said no, that he had seen people killed at a Stones concert, and that this was just the price you pay for a general admission show. Not sure what he meant by that. Uh, he would only have been 13 at Altamont. Maybe he was talking about seeing it on the film, Gimme Shelter. Or maybe he had really easygoing parents. Bruce Springsteen was the first performer to play a show with any general admission seating in Cincinnati after this tragedy. That was in November 2002. And there was no chaos of any kind, but a lot of people liked to point out that this was an older, more mature crowd. It was not the end of rock and roll concert deaths. It happened again in 1991 at an ACDC concert in Salt Lake City, Utah. Three dead, ages 14, 14, and 19. And yes, there was festival seating. This time, they were crushed to death four feet from the stage after waiting in line overnight for $18 tickets. So what do we make of this? I am not about to blame musicians for wanting to make money at their craft. Certainly, arena rock is a different brand of rock. It's probably more of a radio format than anything. And while it may not be cerebral, it is fun. And there is a reason why millions of people still love it. However, as rock and roll became a commodity on the scale that we saw in the 70s, where it was big enough to be housed in stadiums and coliseums, there was a responsibility to ensure the safety and well-being of the fans that made any of that possible. And because there wasn't, Walter Adams, age 22, Peter Bowes, age 18, Connie Sue Burns, age 21, Jacqueline Eckerly, age 15, David Heck, age 19, Teva Ray Ladd, age 27, Karen Morrison, age 15, Stephen Preston, 
age 19, Philip Snyder, age 20, Brian Wagner, age 17, James Warmoth, age 21. They all paid with their lives. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. And if you're feeling in the holiday giving mood, hit one of those donate buttons on FTR70.com and help keep the show ad-free. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody.